Welcome back to The Rate of Change with York Wealth Management. The Rate of Change is a podcast which explores the ever-shifting momentum of financial markets through the eyes of some of the brightest minds in wealth management. I'm your host, Murdoch Gaddy, and in today's podcast, we're speaking with Cullen Gunn, the CEO and a director of Kilter Rural. Kilter Rural operates four funds in agriculture and the water space. But today, we're talking to Cullen about investing in water and water rights, in particular, the Kilter Water Fund, which has an annualized return of 14.58% since inception, and the Murray Dulling Balanced Water Fund, which has an annualized return of 13.29% since inception. We dive into detail about all things water. Cullen covers how they go about investing in water, what are the main factors that impact water and water markets, and how to think about investing in water as an asset class. For me, I found the conversation on the weather for once to be the most interesting of topics. And I was also very intrigued by just how little correlation these water funds actually have on other asset classes like the Australian share market, especially with the inflation pressures we're seeing in the market right now and rising interest rate environment. So before we get into the podcast, I would also encourage you to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the Rockcast and to keep your feedback coming. You can reach me at mgatti at ywm.com.au. So with that being said, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. So sit back, relax and enjoy it. Cullen Gunn, welcome to the Raid Change with York Wealth Management. Thanks, Murdoch. Terrific to be here. Uh, look forward to the discussion. Why don't we kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourself, your former years, and how you got into financial markets? Ah, yeah. Well, I, I, my history is a long association, really, with, with natural resource management. So uh, coming into financial markets, I, I came through a back door in some respects. Uh, so I was working for a period in government um, back in the early 90s. Uh, and, yeah, it was really about sustainable farmland and water management. Uh, I, I guess through that period, what really struck me was just how limited the government purse was to deal with, you know, many of these issues. You know, they sort of were moving um, from a doing organisation to... I guess a policy, more policy driven, where they were, they were setting up frameworks like water markets, for instance. Um, uh, uh, and um, uh, through that process, you know, when I was there, they put a cap on water extractions and all that was really interesting. But I guess, you know, I just felt the, the government purse was never going to be uh, and deliver enough money uh, to make the change that was required in rural, uh, you know, rural areas and rural environments. Um, and, you know, we sort of, I guess we're looking for ways we could enter um, a broader marketplace uh, and capital pool uh, and deploy that capital pool to sustainable land and water management. Um, and that, um, that, that that's sort of the genesis of, you know, it sort of leads on to how to kill the start. I, I, I was very, uh, well, lucky, I guess, in a way. We were just sitting in a meeting with a bloke called Bob Welsh, who was head of one of the local super funds. A terrific guy and miles ahead of his time. You know, he was the CEO and he sat there at a meeting one day and said, look, I run a big Victorian super fund. I want to invest in Victoria and I want to do that sustainably uh, and I want to deliver good outcomes both environmentally and financially to our members. And, you know, we were sitting there and went, crikey, this is pretty unusual. <laughs> you don't have somebody who was running a $3 billion fund at the time sort of just come into a meeting and say that. Anyway, we left that meeting and thought somebody else would address it. And then we went to a similar meeting six months later. He said exactly the same thing. And so uh, I, I went up to him with a mate. We weren't working together. We had worked together previously. And I said to Bob, Bob, what if we came up with, you know, something for you? You know, we, we, we come up with an investment proposal for you. Um, and, and he was terrific. He said, well, look, I'll listen. I can't guarantee we'll do anything with YouTube buffoons, but, you know, <laughs> let's uh, let's see what you can come up with. And 
that really was a that was the genesis of Kilter. Really, we we then took two years um, and we worked pretty closely with Vic Super to develop an investment program for farmland and water and, and environmental protection, uh, and that kicked us off in you know that started in two thousand and four, um, and we've sort of been delivering against those themes now as an organisation for you know close enough to nineteen years. So, you know, a fortunate sort of. Um, um, occurrence but you know you've got to take those take those opportunities when they're in front of you yeah so can you give a bit of an insight into the approach because you're talking about you know how it came to be but what's the actual philosophy of what you guys do well i guess our philosophy really is based around um an, an inherent belief that you know if you want to produce food and fiber sustainably into the future you actually have to protect the natural capital assets on which you rely to produce that stuff. So if your environment or your ecosystem collapses, um, you're really just degrading your assets. You're decreasing the value of those assets. You're not building value. Uh, and it's hard to sustain production. Um, and certainly through, you know, if you went back in time, even to the 50s, you know, there's the thing called the Soil Conservation Authority in Victoria because we were we cleared so much vegetation, you had all these degradation and salinity issues happening. And then in the 80s and 90s, um, when irrigation water was basically sort of, um, uh, it was a use it or lose it sort of paradigm, people would use it every year or would get socialised back into the system and they just poured it on. It was a sort of profligate use. It caused massive environmental degradation. So, you know, the state was actually holding inquiries because it was worried about losing access to its irrigation farmland due to irrigation or water-induced salinity. So, you know, you look at all those things and you go, all right, well, there's better ways to do this um, if you've got access to capital, you know, that is a that is a key constraint. There's lots of great, great farmers out there. Um, but, you know, you need access to capital, you need patience, you need to be able to change things. So that really drove, drove um, certainly my working life. You know, how do we do this farming activity more sustainably? You know, how do we work with people, invest in landscape to generate more money, but protect the environment at the same time? And on the back of that sort of protection of the environment, we've, we've now got, you know, of course, climate change mitigation. So, you know, we know if you're looking at levers we can pull at the moment to actually take carbon out of the atmosphere, uh, planting trees and managing croplands in terrestrial landscapes is bloody it. You know, the rest of it's all still hocus pocus. Um, we know that works. So there, there's sort of some key drivers behind the organisation. The other key thing, uh, Murdoch, I would point out is it, it's a really aligned organisation. Like we have people that absolutely love Australian landscapes and love what they do. So, you know, our sort of philosophy is really, you know, profit with impact in improving Australian landscapes and ecosystems. You know, that's what we're about. That's what we've been doing for, for you know, close enough to 19 years. Uh, we don't go out into other things and, you know, run, become carbon aggregators or, you know, renewable energy providers or whatever. That, that's, our, that's our game. We're in the, the real assets, natural capital space, and we want to improve the natural capital of Australia. All right, well, let's uh, jump into the politics. And the reason I wouldn't mind jumping into the politics is probably everyone's uh, on people's mind um, with water rights. I have, I'll give you an example. I've got a lot of family over in Western Australia, all farmers. My, my father, four or five generations worth of farming. I went to boarding school. You know, a number of farmers out that particular way. I've got a number of clients that actually live on the Murray. So we all hear the particular stories of essentially some people believe they're selling off the land and the water rights for, for internationals to come in and access it. Other people think it's a good thing. Other people think it's a bad bad thing. So. What's your thoughts on the politics of water rights? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a great question uh, and it's it's a big topic. Um, I guess the first sort of thing that occurs to me is that without international capital, you know, there wouldn't be lots of things in Australia. Um, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, 
It's just one of the functions of our society. Certainly the European society is pretty much based on European money and was when it started. So uh, to say we don't want international investment is, is difficult, I think. You know, it's hard to come back from that across a range of range of activities. I, I mean, we're talking about real assets. This isn't stuff internationals can take home. Um, you know, that the, we have a government here that um, is... is um, uh, you know, very stable, considering in the rel- in the relative context of the rest of the world, very stable government and politics, um, and acutely aware of looking after Australia's interests. So I don't hold necessarily the fears around international um, engagement in real assets here, you know, and it's actually, you know, if you look at the biggest investors in farmland um, in Australia over the last, well, probably series of years, they're not institutions from Australia. They're all uh, international institutions. So, um, uh, you know, some of the Canadian pension funds have done billions of dollars over the last five years. And, you know, they come into the communities, they, they work with local communities, they're investing heavily in those areas, uh, they're employing lots of people. And, and, you know, it's difficult, frankly, to get Australian super funds to do the same thing. So, you know, that international capital, I think, is really important. Um, at a sort of more uh, specific level around water and water rights and the tradability of all that uh, and markets, I, I certainly get it. Um, you know, I, I can understand the angst. Uh, if, you, if you think about how this sort of market evolved, you know, you had periods where the government supported development, the building of dams, the allocation of water to farmers to, you know, get productive activity happening. Uh, and all all great initiatives, um, but not without cost, you know, not without environmental cost. And as we become better resource managers and understand more about these systems, um, you know, we know that you just can't throw water out. It, it's it's a valuable resource, you know. Having no value attached to that water and encouraging people just to use it whether they needed to or not uh, did not end well in an environmental sense. I mean, we really had some significant problems driven by overuse of irrigation water. So actually creating a market for those entitlements, putting a value on that resource, and you've got to remember, Murdoch, we are in the driest inhabited continent on Earth. Uh, Water is about as important as it gets. So there's sort of two ways you can deal with that. One is you let the government decide who gets the water. Uh, and that's sort of pretty much how it was run uh, until 2000, well, sort of 2007 really had significantly changed. Post that, you know, individuals have options about how they deal with their water. So prior to 2007, you could sort of trade water, um, you know, over, over um, uh, certain areas. Uh, but before that, it was really quite restricted. So you could give it to your neighbour sort of thing. But, you know, it was hard to tra- transfer um, uh, across states, for instance, as you can now, or less easy, let's put it that way. Uh, and, you know, it's just in drought times, if you're in a market, you've got an extra asset you can sell. You know, the government has set it up now. So that, that water entitlement, you know, it's a title held in the state titles office. It's property. Uh, it's as rigorously protected for the individual as a land title. Uh, and I think that's an important evolution for the individual. You know, it, it just permits individual choice. Having said that, there's there are issues with it. You know, if you think about the average age of farmers, they're 55 to 65. All this happens on computers. You know, so some of them are quite a fay with it, but there are lots that aren't, you know, and they fall through the cracks. I don't think the government's done the best job of bringing everybody up to speed so they have the same access to information and ability to deal in this market. I think that is an issue, and I can see why people, you know, that didn't have to think about water, it was just there every year, I get it, I use it, bang, that's it, I run my dairy farm, to now they've got to consider all sorts of things, got to deal with a water breaker to access water. You know, it's, it's a a significant change in operating environment that I understand really does upset some people. But, but you know, ultimately, I think it's much better the individual has the choice about how they deal with that scarce asset than leaving it in the hands of the government to decide for them, which is pretty much the other option. Um, so, 
you know, in drought periods, if you look what happens, water just keeps trading up the value chain. So, you know, in the in the millennium drought, um, we had a 70% reduction in water availability. Uh, we only had a 30% drop in productive output. So that water just moved up the value chain, you know, moved from mixed farming through rice, through cotton, and right up just to horticultural crops. And I think when you're talking about the scarcest resource we've got in the country, that's a pretty sensible way to deal with it. You know, you're supporting those things that really need support in dry times and in wet times, everybody's got access like at the moment. So it's a long-winded answer. I don't think there's, you know, <laughs> there's lots of people who won't agree with it, uh, but I think markets have been important. The ability to trade and the opportunity that provides to individuals, I think, is important. Uh, uh, and the property right that's been built around those entitlements is really fundamental. So, you know, if you looked at most farmers and they own, you know, most of the water still in, in the Southern Murray-Darling Basin, um, you know, it, it's a key part of their asset uh, now. When, you know, at one point, you know, 70s, 80s, probably didn't have much value at all. So I was going to pivot into asking about the environment because uh, climate change is on everyone's minds, but I will get that to in a second. But you said something quite interesting how uh, – I'll phrase it as a question. What actually is the Australian water rights universe? And what I mean by that is I've got a very, very close family member that works in Sydney Water. So a lot of people are like, you know, that's government. And then you have the private market. Yeah. And one, uh, when I was speaking yeah. to a couple of your colleagues, I had no idea – I thought I knew quite a bit about this space that you I thought you could potentially purchase water in say the Murray Darling Basin and then essentially sell it in Western Australia. But it, it appears that each particular state has their own restrictions and what they can and can't do. So can you please give everyone a bit of colour around what is the Australian water rights universe and how does it different yeah, well, state to state? A, yep, I can. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, look, it's I don't know what it will be uh, capitalised at now, but if you look nationally, I don't know, it's probably 50 or 60 billion, you know, maybe if you're looking at water markets everywhere. But, but uh, I mean, the key thing to remember here, and this is an important element in the market, uh, and when people talk about investors investing in water, it does upset them. They think, oh, they're just making money out of arbitrage and all that sort of stuff. Well, ultimately, somebody absolutely has to use the water to generate a return, you know, somebody's got to use it. Somebody's got to use it to grow something. So it must end up at that point. Um, now, you can't do that unless you can physically ultimately get the water from one, one spot to another. So the reason you can't just buy water here and trade it in WA is there's no hydrologic connection that allows you to do that. If you look at what happens in the southern Murray-Darling Basin, We've got one river that transcends three states. So it starts up in the Alps, New South Wales, Victoria, and then runs as the border across those states right out through South Australia. Um, and that river permits government and government-related authorities to actually transfer water around in an accounting sense that actually allows the delivery of real water to areas across that whole region. So you need a hydrologic function that allows the water to be delivered. Uh, now, you can't, for instance, do that to, to Western Australia. There's no connection. We couldn't sell it into New, uh, you know, the Northern Territory. And similarly, you can't sort of do it up into uh, the Northern Basin. The Northern Basin sort of disconnected. It is connected, of course, but it's disconnected in that you don't get that hydrologic um, all the time connection through those systems. So the Southern Murray-Darling Basin is the area where we have the most transferability of water. It's the biggest trading market. You know, uh, I think it's around 35 billion, um, you know, uh, in, in uh, capitalised at 35 billion. Uh, and it's got somewhere between 700 and a billion uh, in trade each year across allocation and entitlement. So it's really that ability to transfer water that makes this market work and then having the rules around it uh, that, you know, are pretty stable. I'm not saying the rules don't change. They, they blimmin', they do. But but it's a, bit, it's a bit like doing property development, you know, from one council to the next. The basics are the same, but each council's got their own little way of dealing with stuff. So, um, uh, you know, when you're talking across states, you've got to deal with three different state, state uh, organisations and then a series of water authorities under that. So that that's it. In a transfer sense, that's one thing. The, the other thing to just consider here is we're talking about water for agriculture. 
okay? There's a series of bulk entitlements. So water for human consumption, consumption completely different, you know? And that's what Sydney Water's doing. You know, it's a completely different thing. It's run by state organisations. We have nothing to do with that. We're just dealing in that market that has been put aside for generating agricultural outcomes. Um, and similarly, they've now got another, you know, uh, well, it's not a market so much, but another bulk entitlement, uh, which they've always sort of had, but they're, they're building up for the environment, you know, because the environment underpins basically all the irrigation system. So the environmental side of it collapses. We've got no irrigation system either. Uh, so, you know, balancing those sort of three things is, is a challenge. Uh, but we really, we just work in that agricultural part of it. Okay, so in the agricultural part of it, let's use an example. Um, so you said the North Basin, right? So uh, what commodities uh, or farmers are in the North Basin? And then, as you said, the South Basin is the majority. So let's use the, the almond farmer as an example, right? So how would that contract work? Like say, I don't know, that I want to go open an almond farm. <laughs> you know, yeah. what's the spot rate? Do I forward buy contracts like you know how do i protect myself like how does it actually work start to finish if i'm an almond farmer yeah okay well it's a really good question generally the northern basin it's got a bit more of that sort of permanent horticulture happening uh but not nearly as much as the southern basin uh historically the northern basin's focused on mixed farming cotton and rice there's been lots of those um big areas doing um uh, covering that and they really work when water's there um, so, you know, if it's really wet, you get lots of cotton going in. I think Cubby Station, for instance, at the moment has put in the largest cotton crop it's ever put in. You know, I might not have that quite right, but it's massive compared to what's been going on um, uh, for the last decade. So, and th- that's all a response to water availability. Uh, so there's there's some big industries up there, but numerically not heaps. Um, if you look at the Southern Basin, it, it's got everything almost every crop you can think of, you know, from just growing grass to to feed animals right through to, you know, almonds, olives, citrus, um, almost pistachios, almost everything you can think of. So for us, when we're looking at risk management, we like a diversity of industry, you know, uh, a diversity of industry exposure. And then even within those industries, you really want a diversity of clients, Um, you know, some at the high end, some at the low end, um, you know, you want the best sort of mix of um, uh, exposure you can get across both those things. So that that's that's really important um, for us uh, when we're talking about the basin. If you were an almond grower, for instance, uh, and they are still planting almonds down down sort of um, um, much of it tends to be in the in the area or sun rays you around Mildura. So, you know, around that sort of uh, that satellite city. So, you know, New South Wales, South Australia, there's a riverland with all the grapes. And then, you know, Victoria down to Boundary Bend, there's olives and almonds. So massive, massive um, uh, planting programs down there. If you ever take a drive down there, it's just it's it's to the horizon. You know, you just see these these massive groves of trees, which it's amazing to look at. Uh, each one of those operations will treat water differently. Uh, but. On the whole, uh, they treat it as another input to their business. So they're almond producers. You know, they want nuts and they will produce nuts the most efficient way they can. Um, we certainly have clients down there that sort of run a third, a third, a third. So they'll put in an almond crop and they cost around 60 grand a hectare to put in, somewhere between 40 and 60 grand a hectare. Um, and then uh, at Sort of when they're planted, they use around two to three megalitres per hectare water. Once they're at full production, that can increase to between 12 and 14 megalitres per hectare. So there's a big jump as the groves uh, mature. Some of our clients will do things like they'll own a third of the entitlement they need for their groves. They'll play in the spot market for a third of it. So annually, just enter the allocation market and buy water you know, if or as they need it. Um, And then, you know, they might use groups like us to provide them with a lease. So most of our income, the vast majority of it, is generated in our funds by leasing water to long-term clients. Uh, And in almost all cases, it's rarely the full um, quota of their water need 
they'll supplement it with other things, either stuff they own or, or in the spot market. So that's how uh, many deal with it. Some actually don't own any water at all. You know, there are some massive bloomin' plantings out there that don't own any water rights and they will just enter the spot market. Um, so, you know, I, I reckon that's an interesting strategy. It's certainly, you know, less capital. You mentioned the spot market just, just quickly. What actually is the spot price of water? And can you give our listeners a bit of an idea? In the past, say, well, I suppose uh, seven years, what's been the high, what's been the low, and where's water been forecasted to go? And the reason why this is interesting is just to – I think there's some – other competitors out there that physically trade water. And my understanding what Rural does is you don't physically trade water. You're looking for essentially to purchase the asset, generate income off that asset, and then the growth of that asset, right? So I think that might give a bit of understanding when you're looking at these farmers, you know, that there is this cycle and they're trying to forecast and hedge against this cycle. So that'd be great if you give a bit of an yeah, overview. That's exactly what they're trying to do, Murdoch. It's, it's about... Um you know, it's about risk management and protecting, you know, the future, you know, what, what's going to happen in an uncertain future. So, um, uh, look, I think, uh, how's the best way to answer that? So our water products, you're right. We, we, as I said, generate most of our income by leasing water to people. Um, now, when we invest in water, what we're investing in primarily is something called a water entitlement or a water share. Okay, and that's a perpetual right to access real water available in a system. It's a bit like owning a glass in a dam. You know, you've always got that glass there. That's it. It's yours forever. It's like your house block. Um, And then each year, depending on how much it rains, uh, that glass gets filled with water. And both those things are tradable. So the entitlement, we don't trade very often. Sometimes we sell down to rebalance portfolio and things, but that's our long-term investment. The water that comes into the entitlement or the glass each year, that's the sort of spot water or allocation water. And that's traded, you know, quite readily by people, by farmers, you know, each year. You know, a farmer will get their water and they'll say, all right, do I want to use it to grow a crop this year or will I trade it? You know, and there's, you know, that's a much more active trading market and similarly much more volatile. So going to your question about how, uh, what's the variability in that spot market, it's quite variable. So at the moment, or I think last week or two weeks ago, the the allocation or spot price uh, for real water, if you wanted to go into the market and buy it to grow something, was about $5 a megalitre. Uh, now, that's fine at the moment because it's really wet. You know, we've had three very wet years in a row, uh, three La Nina events, you know, so well above average. In fact, last October was the wettest, I think, October ever in history. Um, European history for sure. Um, so, you know, water's really cheap. A lot of it around keeps raining uh, or has been. Um, so uh, it got, it's it been down as low as five bucks. For most of this year, it's been in that 50 or probably less than that actually, really on average, probably 30 to 50 range. Um, earlier in the season, it was, a, it was $70, you know, when it was not quite as wet before October, all that sort of stuff. So um, it does vary in drought times. Uh, we have seen that get up to $900 a megalitre. So it's an enormous variation um, in uh, the the value of that allocation water or that spot water can occur each year, you know, just depending on how much water is available. The entitlements, on the other hand, are not quite as volatile. uh, But to remove the volatility altogether, you know, we could have huge volatility if we just held entitlement and were trading in the spot market all year, if that was our process for generating returns, uh, we'd be getting smashed to pieces in a year like this because you're getting $5 a megalitre for the water. Uh, and, you know, the entitlements can cost you between, I don't know, seven and $11,000. Um, you know, that's the primary asset you're investing in. Uh, so as I said before, you know, we've been doing this for a long time and we prefer to generate our returns by leasing that water through long-term sort of multi-years up to up to five, but generally three uh, years to, you know, to clients, a client base of now, I think we've probably got over five, 500 different clients on the books. And, you know, we just, we just write these leases long-term and what that gives us is stable income. So the farmer will lease that entitlement from us. 
they take the risk on how much allocation comes in, you know, so whether it's wet or dry, that's their risk. But that risk doesn't change whether they own the entitlement or lease it from us. Exactly the same risk profile. Um, you know, whether they own it and it's a really low allocation year, they get a low allocation. They lease it from us. It's a low allocation year, they get a low allocation. But we just get a stable rental offered, I guess, is the key thing rather than relying on the spot market. So how does that transcend into the performance of the fund? So I suppose what, what's actually been the performance? Uh, well, we've got two open funds at the moment. Um, there's the Kilda Water Fund, which was established in 2014, uh, and that's done over 14% since inception. Um, and it's a fund that just does, you know, it's charged with doing two main things, really. One is investing in the entitlements, uh, and generating return from those entitlements. And the second thing is we do that by working with really good clients, long-term clients, and delivering them lease products and other water products. We do have some other things, but the lease is the main one. So, you know, it's just delivered a really stable return profile. Um, uh, and as I said, it's 14.1% since inception. Um, the other fund is something called the Balanced Water Fund, and it's a collaboration between us and the Nature Conservancy. Uh, the Nature Conservancy is one of the largest uh, environmental organisations in the world based in the US, but we work with their Australian arm on this fund. And it does exactly the same thing as the Kilda Water Fund. It invests in entitlements and generates the vast majority of its returns through leasing water to irrigators. So both these funds are about keeping irrigators and getting them access to water. But the Balanced Water Fund is really quite um, novel in that it's trying to avoid that complete contrasting argument that's always going on about you can either have water for the environment or water for agriculture. You can't do both. Uh, it delivers 60% of its water is in lease and actually can be up to 70 or 80% in lease with farmers. But every year it also makes a donation of water for environmental and cultural watering outcomes. So there's no other fund like it in the world. Kilt is responsible for generating the return from leasing the water and managing the water portfolio. Each year against um, unambiguous rules, we have to make a donation of water to the, uh, to the Nature Conservancy, who then work with another group called the Wetlands Working Group, and they deliver that water into uh, important wetlands and rivers in the southern Murray-Darling Basin. So... It's a really novel fund. It's delivered over, um, well, close enough to 13%, 12.7% since inception. Um, you know, so if you're looking for something that delivers really solid returns and is delivering also those impact outcomes, it is it's a it is an amazing fund. Um, uh, we like them both, of course, <laughs> but, um, you know, it depends on where people sit. So essentially, uh, one's an ethical fund and uh, one's for the capitalists. Well, I guess that's I know a, I'm saying that a bit cheekily, but the reason why the reason why I'm phrasing in that particular way is: <laughs> can you please give some clarity on uh, with the metrics, like and uh, how they're different? There's a difference in the return component. Um, is it a difference, and why is that difference? Is it because the fees that are being charged in the structure? I suppose my question is: there's they're two very similar mandates. How are they structured? Differently, I understand one gives water back to conservations, but are the yeah, fund right. fees different? So there, are, there, 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 there are operating costs, operating costs associated with that uh, allocation of water to the environment each year. So if you look at the Kilda Water Fund, it has a distribution profile and target of four. I think it did six percent last year. Um, uh, uh, on top uh, in association with the capital growth, uh, whereas the balanced water fund has a target distribution of two. So that's really the gap. You've got to make that environmental water allocation for uh, environmental watering, but it also, much of the watering they do requires pumping. I mean, our systems are quite disconnected nowadays, so it's not easy. It's just opening a sluice and away the water goes. Often you have to pump it from one area to, you know, a wetland that, you know, can be some some distance away from the main water source and it's dry. So there are pumping costs involved and we have to support the Nature Conservancy in the Wetlands Working Group with a cash allocation as well to get those operating costs covered. So that that that's really the difference in the return profile. 
Okay. Um, so th- that makes a lot of sense. How much money is currently in both funds at the moment? Uh, the Kilda Water Fund's about to tick over to uh, fifty million in May, uh, with a with a good allocation coming in uh, later this uh, later this month, uh, and the Balance Water Fund is around ninety million, uh, and I think that'll probably get up over a hundred over the next month or so too. How big's the team? Our team, um, the Kilda team in total is around 20. So we, uh, in, in addition to the two water funds, we've got uh, a water mandate with a big US institutional investor, um, which is fully deployed. Um, uh, and we've also got two agriculture and water funds. So um, across that, uh, those three funds, uh, those four funds and the mandate, there's there's 20 of us servicing that. Um and, you know, the sort of farm team sort of flex a bit depending on what's going on. But, you know, yeah, around 20. Hmm. Is it just Kilta or, or are you under an umbrella of another farm manager? Uh, we are nowadays. We, it was just Kilta for a long period. Then in 2018, um, uh, when we were initiating one of our other agriculture funds, uh, we had... Um, uh, uh, we came in contact with a guy called, uh, well, uh, two gentlemen, Phil and Andrew King, um, who were looking to invest in real assets and were looking for a manager to invest with. And they took a position, an early position in one of those funds. And from that, they like what we do. They love the water story. They love the sustainability story. And they invested in the company through Regal, um, uh, Regal Funds Management. So Regal in 2018 um, uh, bought 50% of the organisation. And they've increased that stake more recently to around 61. Uh, so Regal uh, uh, Proprietary Limited are the ma- majority owner of the company now. Myself and one of the other co-founders own the rest of it. Yeah, right. So uh, with alignment, uh, this is a great question. The reason why we like asking this particular question is we've learned over time that different ways how fund managers structure, how they get remunerated, essentially dictates behavior on how they look to invest in assets, right? And as you said correctly, you just had a, a very, very well-respected uh, fund manager by 50% of the business, right? And then now you're managing yourself. So how, how is the um, remuneration structured within the firm and how are you aligned to uh, investors? Thank you. Yeah, well, I mean, we've always had a, um, I'd say, a really responsible attitude to fees. Um, I'm not saying others are irresponsible, but, uh, you know, we started with a large institutional investor, uh, you know, and a a, a not-for-profit or a profit-to-member investor, and boy, did they push us hard on fees. So uh, we've always been, you know, um, I guess, very open about our fee base and saying we, you know, it's a cost plus model, you know, cost plus 10% on the on the base fee really to deliver these things. Uh, we want to get rewarded through the performance side. So when we perform, that's when we start making some money. So there are performance hurdles across our funds that we've got to, we've got to reach. That That's one element to it. Um, and we've always had... What are those hurdles? Line. Oh, they vary. Um, uh, but look, look... Uh, a standard sort of approach would be 15, 15% over eight uh, for, for these sorts of assets, which is pretty standard, I think you'll find across, you know, much of our industry. So, um, uh, but just more specifically at a staffing level, we've always had an employee share trust uh, as an organisation. Uh, merging with, with Regal actually allowed us to, I think, make that a much better opportunity for our staff. So, they actually get a small portion of ownership in Regal over, you know, after three years in the organisation, which I think is a great outcome. And then, you know, annually the organisation, Kilter itself, has its own bonus pool. Uh, so if the company makes, uh, uh, you know, a profit, 10% of that is available for staff involved in, you know, delivering the activity. So uh, it's been a pretty good sort of aligned process there, I think, at, at, at all levels across, you know, various teams and um uh, you know, successful at this point. And I think the regal alignment uh, or, or relationship there is really helpful for that too. Um, let's pivot into beta. Not many people are familiar with beta, but it's essentially the correlation between a fund and how it behaves towards a specific market, right? Zero to one. 
So the one thing I always found uh, very interesting about the water space, it's kind of like correlated to not much. It's like its own little unique uh, ecosystem, right? So, you know, it's very turbulent times out there. We have, you know, a tightening environment. So if you don't mind covering, you know, how does uh, inflation uh, impact the portfolio? And then secondly, um, why does the fund have such a low beta? Yeah. Well, I, I think if you're looking at either of the funds, you know, the, the, the sort of correlation is it's close to, as you said, zero. You know, I mean, you could argue it's it's 0.01 or 0.02, I guess. You know, you could model it <laughs> that way. But it's it's really, you know, in the context of other things, if you look at ASX, REITs, gold, that's top 300, S&P 500, the volatility is a lot less. You know, it's 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 around that sort of, six seven percent generally um uh, and you're getting a good return you know in our funds anyway you know you're getting between that 12 and 14 percent return so um what it's really correlated with is is the blooming weather you know that that's it um you know it doesn't really matter what's going on in the rest of the world uh if people are producing food which is the key driver in all this you know it's this water is used to grow stuff um, if they continue to produce food, well, it's really correlation with the weather um, that, that generates, you know, and moves the market. Uh, and that's where we are at the moment. As I explained before, you know, that there's been so much water, the spot price is 5 or $10 a megalitre. You know, it's as low as I've seen it for a, a, a very long time, actually beyond my memory, but my memory is shocking. So, uh, uh, well, but, you know. Well, let's, let's get into this. Years. <laughs> let's let's get um, into this i was yeah. talking to you off air and i said uh on a funny note in polite society they always say never discuss the weather in small talk but turns oh, yeah. out it's probably the most important topic of this conversation it is it is really important and it's not something we've got control over which is a nuisance um uh so you know what do we do we we just all we can do is arm ourselves with the best available information so um you know the water team look at um uh, you know they don't do it themselves but obviously review all the climate models that are coming in and the bom outlooks and um you know there's eight or ten different models uh used across the world to try and determine determine and predict predict the future i mean it is it's a bit like listening to economists i find um murdoch you know (laughs) hear them say look on the one hand we are heading into a massive recession or on the other hand, we could be looking at a period of extended growth. <laughs> you know, you do get a lot of that sort of stuff. So, you know, it's going to be really wet or it's going to be really dry. I think I was reading this morning, actually, uh, the latest BOM outlook, which is suggesting we may be going into an extreme El Nino, so an extreme drought period or dry period, um, which is pretty amazing having just come out of a, you know, what would be described as an extreme wet period. But then it goes on to say, but this is not a guarantee. And it may not happen. If we get the right westerly wind, it will blow this El Nino away. <laughs> you know, so uh, it, it's difficult to say, but all we can do is use the best available information. Each year we put, we you know, we're obviously looking at that every month, uh, but each year we, we, we look at the storages, we look at the available outlook and then determine how we're going to manage the portfolio for the coming year. But that gets reviewed every month just based on, you know, because weather can change very quickly and the outlook can change very quickly. Um, let's let's been, uh, keep going on this weather topic because there's one thing that I found very interesting. I don't know if our, any of our listeners or yourself saw the Netflix series with Graham Hancock. He's been featured on um, Joe Rogan quite a bit uh, discussing the Younger Dryas, essentially the comment that he had like 12,500 years ago. And then one thing I found very interesting about that comment, he, he essentially created a scientific case um, discussing how when – a comet hits or a volcanic eruption pushes a plume of uh, material into the stratosphere and then drops into the ionosphere. And then essentially, what do you say? In about three months, there was just so much of it. It essentially changed the entire climate of the globe into this cold and brought on the the deep freeze, right? You know, the, the frozen years, woolly mammoths and all that type of jazz. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is, and we were discussing it off and I sent you the article. Um, in 2022, there was a very, very fortunate event of uh, Tonga's uh, volcano disaster. And essentially, another plume got shot into the atmosphere. And I think I was uh, reading articles from ABC and also uh, 
Sky News essentially saying, I think there was a couple of geologists even saying that that particular event may disrupt or impact Australia's weather patterns for potentially up to eight years. And there was another article that even said that this particular event made this summer one of the wettest summers of all time, right? So as you said, you're in the business of weather and weather's the main correlation. So have you done, uh, what are your thoughts on that? And and do you want? Uh, and if you want to give a bit of an understanding on the science behind that as well. Yeah, well, look, I mean, it's happened before. Uh, so if you if you go back to the eighteen eighties, and I, and it just was interesting, you put that article, brought that to my attention because I did read this book on Krakatoa not that long ago. But eighteen eighty three, when that thing went off, and much bigger than that um, uh, recent volcanic, this this thing, the noise went around the world. I think seven times, you know, when it exploded. Uh, just a massive event, and it did. It created a volcanic winter that lasted four years. Um, you know, it, it how long did it last? And even about four years. You know, four significantly, years. like yeah, yeah. You know, significantly um, blocked out light, made things colder, blizzards, all that sort of stuff. It did have a did have a massive impact. Uh, and even if you look at art that was done through that period, paintings that were done through that period, they've all got quite a different light because of all the particulate matter in the atmosphere. You know, it just made the light quite different to any other period. Uh, so, look, it has happened. I think uh, that the event you're talking about is probably not big enough to have, you know, it will have an effect, but it's probably going to be at the margins. Um, you know, much more, much more important, and I think much less predictable is how climate change, you know, changes everything. So what does it do to ocean currents? How does that change weather patterns? Um, you know, they're, they're probably a much more likely, I think, uh, and somewhat unpredictable um, um, threat to climate systems everywhere. Uh, the only thing we're certain of at the moment, uh, and, you know, we, we take uh, and have done for many years um, annually taken a presentation uh, from the CSIRO or representative from on there, you know, and IPCC uh, authors, representations from them on what the climate modelling suggesting and what the outlook is. And almost without fail every year, they say it's moving faster than our models, the impacts and the changes. You know, the changes they predicted are pretty right, but it, it tends to be in front of their sort of average modelling. So, um, you know, I think that's, that's what we spend a lot of time looking at, uh, much more so than the sort of black swan event, which is completely outside our control. We can't do much about that at all. You don't know when it's going to happen. You don't know if it's going to happen. You don't know how big it's going to be. Climate change we know is happening, so we do build that into our risk management framework every year and almost every month, really. You're really looking at what's going on. But every year, you know, we, we do look at the risk management uh, and response around either the outlook for dry or wet uh, in the short term, but long term, it, you know, it is absolutely, I think, a fundamental truth. We are looking at more extremes. So you're going to have really big swings from dry to wet and wet to dry. And those events are going to be much bigger. You know, we, we've been through some just amazing climatic events in our farming history over 18 years. So uh, one of the biggest floods we ever had, Murdoch, occurred in January and February, you know, in 2010-11. Uh, which is pretty unusual to get a, a flood in the middle of summer in, you know, what is ostensibly desert in Australia. You know, it's it's not un, unheard of, but, you know, it was the biggest flood that had been in that part of uh, uh, northwest Victoria for, for many decades. So the climate, you know, that, I think that's the bigger risk. You know, that's what we've got to really prepare for and manage for. Uh, I think investing in an asset like water in that, you know, given that outlook's really important, you could almost consider it a climate change hedge uh, because what they're suggesting is water's going to be scarcer in Australia. Um, you're going to have much bigger events, so you will get massive rainfall events, um, but, you know, the long-term trend will be drying. So in summary, you, what you're thinking the forecast might be is essentially uh, a lot more volatile, volatile periods of potentially a lot uh, prolonged wet environments followed by a very prolonged dry environment. Is that what you're thinking? Well, p- potentially, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I've um, I've been around that long. I'm only 56 or something. But um, you've been through some wet things, so 73, 74, 75, you know, it was a pretty wet period. 
but if you'd ask me, uh, Murdoch, what's the thing that could really sink our funds, um, you know, make it really challenging for us, I would have said three wet years in a row, you know, really wet years in a row. So three La Nina events in a row. You know, that's what we used to say five years ago. That's what would make it really challenging. We've just been through them. Uh, and these funds did, one of them did uh, 22% last year and the other one did 17 So um, what's that tell you? Uh, it tells you that the market is becoming much more sophisticated about the outlook. Uh, I don't think we'll get those sort of returns this year. I think last year, you know, people thought the, the wet would stop and we'd start moving on and it didn't, it got wetter. <laughs> so that was a bit unusual. But, um, you know, I think what that tells you is the market and the water market and the operators and users in the market are taking a quite different outlook to the variability and the opportunities provided by water than they did, say, even back in 2016. You know, uh, 2010, 11, uh, in that big flood period, water prices dropped 30 or 40%, um, some entitlements. 2016, another wet period, they dropped you know, 8 to 12. Uh, this time, when it started, they dropped about 6 or 8%, but they bounced back. You know, they went up 16%, some entitlements last year. So Yeah, but you have to ask, you have to ask the process. question why. And then I think, well, I think it's the market's evolved. The research that we've uh, done, you know, um, I so believe it was part of the Labor's campaign that they essentially said that they'll come in and buy 6% of the water rights back Right to essentially protect farmers, everything equivalent. And then, as a couple of my colleagues did some research, and that's like eleven billion dollars. I don't think the government has the funds available to even execute on that particular thing. So, my question to you then, right, is: Do you think, uh, as you said correctly, it's been three dry seasons, uh, wet season, sorry, that essentially the government coming and making those comments has essentially put support or a floor underneath these pr prices and essentially propped everything up. And if that's the case, um, do you think the government has the capacity to execute on purchasing that 6% worth of water rights? Is it sustainable or essentially has that run its course? Mm, good question. Look, I think it's – I'll come back to the government question in more detail, but the other key thing you've got to remember in the change in the market, you know, it's, people are more sophisticated about the outlook and they reckon it's going to get dry. So, you know, that, that's that's a fundamental truth. The other the other thing that has changed is just the amount of permanent horticulture that's now in the system. So if you went back to the sort of 80s and 90s, the biggest water user, particularly in the south, was dairy. You know, that, that, that that's, you know, and dairy farmers can choose to use water or buy in feed. You know, they could buy in feed and trade water. That's an option for them. But once you plant a horticultural plantation, there's no discretion. You know, you spend 40 or 60 grand a hectare, whatever it is, to put them in the ground. You have to water them every year. And those trees have gone in since um, uh, since we began. I think there was probably less than 10,000 hectares of almonds. Now there's close to 65,000 hectares of almonds. And they're projecting that will be 75 by 2030. Um, that's a massive change at the top end of water use, and that is driving market change and market sentiment. You know, people understand that those trees will always need water. Same with olives. The olives are still being planted in the basin. Uh, citrus, uh, wine grapes, all those sort of things, they need water all the time. So that horticultural component has completely transformed the demand side. You know, so you've got supply side issues with climate change, and you've got a demand side change, which is just extraordinary, you know, that the outlook. There's still 20% of water in the system that almond trees will need to take out that they haven't accessed yet as those trees mature. So trees already in the ground that go from 2 megs to 12 megs per hectare as they mature, that's, that's locked in demand. So I think there's, you know, just some fundamentals in the market that have changed. But coming back to the government, um, They have bought a lot of water in the past and they did drive up prices in the past. So if you went back to 8, 9, 10, they were buying a lot of water back then. I can't actually remember, Murdoch, how many billions they spent, but it was billions um, uh, of, of dollars. Uh, and they recovered around 2,100 megalitres through that and other avenues. Um, the federal government... The, what they're saying is exactly what the Libs were saying in a different way. They all said we're committed to completing the plan. Um, so, you know, whichever government was in, they both signed off on it. 
Uh, I think this government's just been more active since it arrived about saying we'll enter the market if we have to. Now, has that underpinned prices? I think that certainly as they look like getting elected, there was probably a bit of a spike there. You know, people thought, crikey, they're going to come in. And last time the government paid between 1.5 and 1.7 times the value of entitlement to get it. Uh, and maybe some people thought that would happen, you know, really quickly. And, you know, so I think there might have been a short-term little blip there, but not 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 a, a long-standing thing. Um, I, will it underpin prices? I think if they do start buying, it will absolutely, certainly, you know, put a bit of a floor in the market. Uh, it's hard to know how they'll do it or how they'll do it quickly. The last time they did it, they basically... Uh, you know, had to set up a, a whole new section of the department with experienced people. Now, all that's been dismantled since. So there's probably going to be a bit of a ramp-up period while they get themselves back in order and actually understand how water markets work and who does what and how they'll get it. Uh, so I think there's probably some changes there. I know they're in the market now in the Northern Basin, uh, buying entitlement or, or putting entitlement uh, offers for entitlement out there. And there are willing sellers. I mean, that's the other thing. Everybody makes a lot of noise about it, but somebody's got to sell to <laughs> So people are making decisions to do that. I don't know if they're the noisy ones or not, but, um, you know, that, that that's how it works. They're not forcing people to sell. They could, but I think it's a real vindication in the market that the government is protecting the property right of the individual and saying, if you want to sell it, we'll buy it, rather than just walking into the market and taking it, which they could ostensibly do, uh, but that no government has ever even suggested that. So I think in one sense, it's a good thing that they, you're protecting the property right of uh, the individual. But it, look, 6% is a lot of water, mate. It, it is. It's huge. Hmm. So if they actually sell I mean, they're supposed to do it by next year. So I don't think that's going to happen. You know, I, I don't think even if they had billions of dollars ready to invest in water entitlements to buy it back, I think it would still be a challenge to buy it back in that time frame. Um, there's a good portion of this water that was supposed to be recovered through state efficiency programs, you know, works and measures programs where you, you know, have perhaps an engineering solution that delivers the same outcome but saves a heap of water. Um, uh, and they had a series of those on the go. Um, but, you know, they're expensive. They take a long time to enact. Uh, states have had a lot of trouble delivering on them. Um, and I think at the moment you're at a bit of a crossroad where the feds are saying we've got to meet this target next year. The states are saying, well, you know, we can do it through these efficiency measures, but we need more time. Will you give us more time? And there's just a bit of a stalemate at the moment. So, look, I, I think it will put upward pressure on prices ultimately you know if they're in the market that seems you know a, a likely outcome to me but when they're in the market to what scale how that plays out i don't know i don't know i mean it's not like the budget's full of ready cash at the moment is it you know where, where, where do the billions come from is one question uh, you know so look the intent's there and i think and we're fully supportive of the basin plan don't, don't get me wrong we think it's really important without a functioning ecosystem and river system we don't have irrigation so we're, we're absolutely supportive of the basin plan um i think they could have gone about it perhaps differently but but you know that's what the balanced water fund sort of there to show there are other ways to do this recover water and deliver it you know deliver water to irrigators at the same time mm. so is there any uh thoughts you want to leave our listeners uh with Oh, look, I think, you know, as an asset class, real assets make sense. You know, we're not here to argue that, you know, your whole portfolio needs to be in them. That just wouldn't make any sense at all. But, you know, if you're sort of thinking somewhere between 2 and 5% of a portfolio and real assets that are alternatives, you know, they're uncorrelated generally to everything else that's going on in the market, um, particularly with ag assets, you do get inflation protection as well, you know, because commodity prices tend to go up. So you've got that inflation hedge. Uh, and if you're walk, looking at water and you're thinking about climate change, well, water's a, a pretty good climate change hedge too. You know, you would expect with less of it around, it will go up in value. So I think, you know, we, we love what we do. You know, we love working with clients that are philosophically aligned. Um, you know, so the more the merrier in that sense. But, you know, you do have to take a, a realistic view with this stuff. You know, farmland's not that liquid. Uh, water's 
excuse the pun, much more liquid. You can get in and out of that pretty quickly. But it's just an uncorrelated inflation-protected asset class that, you know, personally, you know, I've got my super fund in it, um, you know, and I reckon most people should have a portion of alternatives in their portfolio. If anyone wants to learn more about uh, what you guys and girls do, uh, how can they reach you? I think the simplest thing would be, uh, I was going to give out everyone's uh, telephone number, Murdoch, but they might get upset with me if I do that. So probably the simplest thing is just to go to the website, which is www.kildarural.com, and there's just an information request form there, and we'll contact them if, if they want to be contacted yeah, or provide information. They can actually just request information if they want to go down that path, or or actually we'll, we'll give them a call and follow them up. All right, Colin, well, thank you very much for your time. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I hope everyone else has as well. Thanks, Murdoch. Terrific. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Colin. Any views expressed in this recording do not represent the view of any other third party and are the sole personal opinions of the speaker. Any reference to financial product does not constitute advice or recommendation, and before any action, you should seek proper advice from your financial professional. Australian listeners should head to www.moneysmart.gov.au to find more information on obtaining financial advice. To get in touch with York, head to our website, www.yorkwealth.com.au.